Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 46 in our series for 2016, and indeed the last one for this year. And today's date is Friday the 16th of December. And Leon, we're talking to Colin McCabe of Red Hat this week about uh, security and the impediments companies see in uh, in moving to mobile technology. That's right. Uh, he's going to be talking to us all about uh, how companies can shift to mobile technologies and what is involved in that. Red Hat's been around since 1993. It's uh, a great firm and a huge ex- experience. Got four offices in Australia. So uh, now let's listen to Colin. Red Hat, which was founded in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1993, is one of the great names in technology with the added imprimatur of leading the open source movement, mainly promoting Linux, the software originally developed by the Finnish engineer Linus Torvald that sparked a global cooperative movement that is still very vigorous. Red Hat is now a multi-billion dollar company with offices all over the world, four of the many in Australia, where Colin McCabe is Director of Consulting and Training. We're talking Talking to him in this session about some of the factors hindering the now very necessary transition of companies into mobile technology. He cites cost, security and back-end integration as the impediments that companies have reported and that are seen in the 2016 Red Hat Australia-New Zealand Enterprise Mobile Index, results of which open our discussion. Some of the some of the key things which are, which uh, came out, and not really as much of a shock as um, you know, just reiterating what I think a lot of people know is that um, most most organisations do have some sort of mobility uh, enterprise mobility computing platform uh, in place, um, but at, at the same time, these seem to have been uh, uh, grown organically inside of uh, organisations. In, in fact, um, most organisations, I think about fifty nine percent, said that. Uh, they don't really have a measurable ROI in what they're doing with their their mobile strategy, which is which is interesting because they also, at the same time, we have about 85% of organisations who we surveyed said that you know one of the, the key drivers for their their business is to have a compelling ROI in any business cases, and so you know that um, uh, discrepancy tends to suggest that. You know, we've gone ahead with these mobile uh, applications and devices, but we really don't know what they're going to do for the business. Um, and yet organizations are still willing to invest in these without that clear ROI. So, you know, that's that's one of those, those key findings, I suppose, that um, without really understanding what that return on investment is going to be up front, the strategy application um, sort of seems a little bit... Uh, Less than less than ideal. Uh, so that's that's I think one of the key strategies. Uh, Carl, I have to ask you this. I mean, security would be the key risks with a lot of these users. I mean, how is this addressed? Well, security is uh, you know it's an ongoing risk for uh, all IT organisations and and users uh, uh, with their with their mobile devices bring a, a definitely a new set of challenges. Um, so. If you think about uh, IT security as being sort of like the old uh, a castle strategy where you have your your moat, which is your firewall, and you have your, your big ring defences, and then you have your, your internal defences, you know, all those things still apply. It's just where do we put that boundary in terms of, of the defence mechanisms? So we are seeing quite a few organisations say, if you want to use mobile devices, you have to comply to a corporate standard on your mobile device. And also the way that data is 
uh, being transferred back and forth between the internal security uh, areas and the external is also having to be really looked at. So there's a lot more scanning of what's going in and in and out of that data. And we see a lot more two-factor authentication uh, starting to occur. But isn't it a reality that uh, that risk becomes even more pronounced now with uh, bring-your-own-device policies? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's, an, it's an ongoing challenge, especially when we start to look at bring-your-own-apps as well. Um, so bring-your-own-apps, bring-your-own-devices, they, they bring two um, similar but different uh, security challenges. So bring-your-own-application is effectively saying that you know, we have an app which is going to communicate to our, our corporate networks without the IT organization being aware of what, what, what's going on. And we see a lot more bring your own app actually starting to occur. So it is upping what the IT security folks have to do. Um, but we're also seeing also with the bring your own device, um, other apps running on that bring your own device, um, which may not be the, the corporate supplied app. Um, and that brings challenges as well. So when we, we look at that, we also have to start looking at penetration testing in terms of that human element as well. So are people having strong passwords and two-factor authentication on their mobile phones, um, you know, more than just a four-digit number, for example? What is the policy if you lose your mobile phone or your mobile device? Um, how long does it take before IT is given permission to, you know, wipe the phone or wipe the device? Um, and those sort of things. The penetration testing and the social phishing, we're actually seeing um, a lot more concern around that and people actually having their their details given away through a, a phishing uh, mechanism, um, which allows people to start looking at how they can actually access and enter the, that sort of uh, castle wall as such to get inside. Now, the Internet of Things, does that add complication? You know, the guy who has got his car talking to the service centre and he controls that through his iPhone, uh, is this going to add put you know more holes in the cheese uh, well it, it potentially can but those are generally pretty secure uh, communication mechanisms so they're, they're uh, private key exchanges and so you know looking at how do we hack those private keys it's, a, it's actually a difficult thing and the the data which is being transferred is not really um, shall we say uh, of you know high value to, to hackers you know data about how good the car is performing and things like that so, you know, those private key exchanges and requiring authentication to do that um, is very, very, very important, um, as is making sure that the people who are using the third-party devices are also using a secure method of communicating. Now, I have to ask you about back-end integration. I mean, one of the issues that uh, a lot of organisations find is that uh, they, they struggle to make the mobile apps work seamlessly with the legacy of back-office operations. Uh, how is that addressed? Look, absolutely. That's probably one of the largest challenges people have. Um, you know, over the last 20 years, we've gone from, you know, very large uh, back-end systems on mainframes, for example, through to the client-server view and now at the mobile view. But, you know, those big back-end business applications like uh, SAP and, and some of the ERP and CRM uh, applications were never designed for, uh, you know, today's uh, uh, technology uh, landscape. So one of the things is people are putting in an intermediate layer. Um, so something like a, a Red Hat sexual uh, mobile application platform actually can sit in between and, and decipher 
I suppose what you consider as more of a green screen view of the world to actually make it something which is mobile ready. Um, there are other application vendors in the market that do the same thing, but it's really about how do we make it easier without actually having to go and retool those very large systems. So we, we put um, an application set in between the backend systems and the mobile, which actually do things like, you know, one uh, mobile view uh, using uh, technologies like JSON, for example, um, which allows all of that backend uh, uh, application smarts to be presented directly to a mobile phone in a user-friendly method. We're also approaching an era, a lot of people say, uh, where jobs will be taken by computer robots. Is this going to add complication where you've got humans working in towards that sort of a network? Yes and no. Um, I, I don't think that we're going to see computer robots take over everybody. Um, someone still has to design the computer robots until they uh, become smarter than us. But uh, uh, when, you, when you think about the Internet of Things and how that actually uh, integrates into a mobile workforce, one of the things that we see is being able to do proactive analysis effectively so uh, we can start to see through the internet of things when faults may occur so if we add a little bit of big data and smart analytics behind all the data we're getting off the iot then we can start to proactively send field workforces for example to uh, a power substation that seems to be uh, presenting the same sort of issues as we've seen when other power stations have become faulty or uh, substations have become faulty so we can start to actually be more proactive and actually have a uh, higher business uptime as such or a, a faster response rate to the customers so they have a better experience. And we see that with uh, um, the, the smart cars of today already, which actually are proactively sharing the information about things like the engine and the brakes and, and how it's performing and will proactively ask the car vendor to get in contact to say, look, you need to come in for a service because we're seeing these sort of things occur and that tends to suggest that we're going to have a problem if we don't fix it soon. But there's, there's also a need for security from the, say, the car owner's device. Uh, would that be a sort of a back backdoor way into a company's network? Uh, it would be it would be unlikely um, because the the send and receive data that is being looked at from you know the the back end as such if it's not hearing things it's expecting they generally shut down the communication channel and then we'll notify security automatically um so and, and it's very much firewalled in its own sort of you know demilitarized zone as well so not much data or hack can actually you know transition from the target of the data from the application um, back into the, the corporate network. To some degree, it's very similar to what we've seen with SCADA systems over the over the past where, you know, you don't want the SCADA system and, and your network to be connected. And so we're using multiple firewall ruling and, and intelligence in the applications sort of prevents that from really moving too fast. Now, I have to ask you about cost. I mean, uh, this this is a ma major issue for companies. Uh, how do companies actually reduce the cost of uh, enterprise mobile strategies? What do they do? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of ways. Um, one is to, you know, make sure you don't get locked into a proprietary view of the world where, you know, you're locked into that one vendor. So you can actually move vendors if you, if you feel like it or if the cost dictates it. And if you think about 
where and how costs get really high, it's when there's things like a, a pseudo monopoly in a market. And so when we can, and we saw Intel do this in the in the early uh, 2000s, where you know the costs of servers, for example, was massive. Um, you know, people had to buy. Uh, big iron servers, say from Sun or from IBM, and then Intel really came in and actually opened up that market by allowing people to run their applications on commodity-based hardware. So looking at commodity-based software, um, so uh, MBAS or mobile application as a service, um, and looking at open source or non-proprietary methods of doing that, so where there is a, a common framework that you can choose multiple vendors on, really helps to drive those costs down. Uh, from a, a you know a mobile device perspective, um, you know we see uh, lots of organisations uh, transferring the cost of the mobile device onto their uh, their staff. Um, although, you know, looking at that, we also see um, I think it was something like fifty five percent still buy mobile devices for their companies. But there are some ways around that. Um, but really, the, the the key thing is around lowering that cost of almost that middleware solution that sits in between the uh, big iron and also the mobile device. Um, we also see a lot of uh, movement towards uh, software as a service. Um, so things like Salesforce, um, et cetera, uh, really you know, come with that pre-made mobile application view. Colin McCabe, thank you very much. I think it's obvious that uh, the great thing about change is that it keeps changing. Thank you very much, Gary. Cheers. Well, there you go. Pretty good advice, I think. And uh, Companies, mobile is the big thing, of course, as uh, as we all know, becoming increasingly so with payments and this sort of thing. I think, yes, and I think it's uh, going to be inevitable we're going to be moving to that. Companies can't ignore it. And now Dr. Shane Oliver of AMP. Shane Oliver, it's been a volatile year for markets in 2016, and uh, it's all been guided by the politics of what's happening. What sort of outlook do you see for 2017 for the market? My view is that 2017 will be a, a, a reasonable year for investors. Uh, to some degree, you could say it's a bit of a continuation of what we've seen over the last few years, with global growth still being a little bit subpar compared to what we saw prior to the GFC. Monetary conditions still very easy, um, but at the same time, we've actually seen a pickup in leading economic indicators, such as the business surveys that are released each month, what, what economists call PMIs, that in recent times they've actually picked up. Uh, which is very different to say a year ago. Um, so when you put all those things together and then when you overlay on top of that the prospect of fiscal stimulus coming out of the US under a uh, under Donald Trump, um, my feeling is that it should be a reasonably good year. It's We're starting off from a point where valuations are sort of okay. They're, they're not cheap if you look at PEs on their own, but if you look at uh, the yields that shares offer, um, price earnings are yields adjusted for um, still relatively low interest rates, then shares, I think, still have more upside, particularly in an environment where profit growth is likely to pick up. So overall, we're looking for reasonable gains. I mean, my rough rule of thumb uh, for the year ahead is you're looking for for returns out of equities of around 8 to 10%. Um, obviously, uh, some might have a little bit more, others a little bit less. I think the potential is much greater in Europe, for example, um, whereas the US has had a huge run and it by, might be a bit more constrained. But in this environment, I, I think reasonable year for shares in 2017. Are there any things investors should be watching out for? I, I guess there's always things to watch out for and worry about. First one, of course, is, the, uh, is how Donald Trump will go and what his stimulus uh, program might look like and what weight... He puts on um, his uh, so-called protectionist policies. 
So if we get Donald Trump, the pragmatist, more focused on stimulating the U.S. economy um, and making it easier for business in the U.S. via deregulation, then that would be a big positive for markets. If alternatively it all turns sour with a, with a trade war with China, then of course that wouldn't be so good. So I guess I'm looking out for, for more of the former, more, more of a focus on stimulus rather than less on, uh, on uh, getting into a trade war and hopefully that, that issue should sort itself out. But I think as the year progresses, you will see a bit of noise around trade. Donald Trump has to do something about that because that was the mandate on which he was elected upon. So I think he will make a bit of noise about that. But I think at the end of the day, he'll probably aim at something which doesn't cause an all-out trade war and therefore turns out to be reasonable. And when you put that together with your stimulus program, it turns out to be OK for, uh, for global growth and shares. Next issue, I guess, to keep an eye on is what the Fed does. The Fed has uh, been on an extended pause through much of 2017. I guess that's helped markets to some degree. Now, of course, with the US economy looking stronger and Donald Trump going to provide stimulus, then the Fed can sort of uh, start moving again. And so we'll see a few Fed rate hikes through 2017 as the year goes by, and that could cause a bit of volatility. But I think at the end of the day, US interest rates will still end up being very, very low. Um, another issue, of course, is the European elections through the year ahead. We've got uh, starting in the Netherlands, an election in March, uh, then in France in April and May, then, of course, later in the year in September in Germany. And, of course, the focus there is on how the so-called populists will do, you know, the Le Pens of the world and whether success on their front might lead to a breakup of Europe. My, my feeling is that as we've seen, for example, in Greece, that uh, you know, the populists um, will probably do OK and make a lot of noise. But I, I don't see, for example, Le Pen taking over in France. France is too much of a centrist-oriented country to see that happen. Um, so I think she might make the first round of the presidential election, but I don't think she'll make the second round. But nevertheless, that Eurozone breakup risk issue will probably remain with us as we go through 2017. Um, that'll be something that causes periodic volatility, as it has over the last couple of years. And well, then finally, the big one for us is what China does, whether their economy slows down. I think they'll probably continue to muddle through. And then, of course, lowly. Uh, we've seen a, a soft sort of end to 2016 in terms of Australian economic growth. My feeling is it will probably pick up but uh, there are risks around that. Shane, of course, the uh, big question is what's happening with Australia's growth. Uh, last week with the GDP figures, it was down around 1.8%. We hadn't been that, down that number since the global financial crisis. There are warnings from certain quarters that we could be headed for a recession. Uh, what's your view about that? There's certainly risks there, but I think that growth will bounce back in the December quarter. So we've seen a contraction of 0.5%, taking the uh, annual growth rate down to 1.8%, the lowest since 2009. But there was a bunch of uh, odd factors that sort of combined to give us that very weak reading in the September quarter. Um, there was heavy rainfall, which affected construction activity, both housing and non-dwelling construction. Um, that will presumably have come to an end and we'll see a bounce back in construction activity. There's ongoing strength in state capital spending, capital works, particularly in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. So that will, that will see a bit of a bounce back. Recently, we've seen stronger retail sales, so we'll see consumer spending bounce back. And finally, we've got um, uh, ongoing completion of various resource projects, which will lead to a pickup in, or continued pickup, um, notwithstanding the fall in the September quarter, um, pickup in resource export volume. So I think all those things will see a return to growth 
The main issue, I think, will come later in 2017 as the housing construction cycle does finally turn down. Um, and by then, we'd hope that uh, mining investment has stopped falling and the two will sort of offset each other. Um, but that's an issue for later in 2017. The issue is also general uh, investment, non-mining investment. I mean, how, where do you see that happening? Non-mining investment certainly has been disappointing. Um, at the moment, all there is is signs that uh, it's stabilising. But I guess if you look at the uh, building side or non-dwelling construction, as they, it's often called technically, um, there's quite a pickup in building approvals there, suggesting there's quite a lot of projects that uh, might come along um, to sort of perk growth up on the non-mining side in the in the year ahead. So, And, of course, you've got those state um, capital works, lots of freeways going in, light rails, metros and so on. Um, those things are also provide a boost. But... Basically, for Australia, we're looking at growth running around 2.5% through 2017, up from the low recently at 1.8% we saw in the September quarter, but uh, yeah, a long way from boom time conditions, but uh, not, not, uh, not a recession. Do you see it picking up further from that, uh, looking ahead to 2018? Well, hopefully it will pick up in 2018 and we'll see growth back around the 3% level, uh, which of course used to be the Reserve Bank's own forecasts. Um, but we've seen over the last five years ongoing uh, disappointment on that front. We get a perk up in growth, looks very good, looks nice and rosy, and then suddenly we slide back down again. Uh, the, the one thing that will be a big positive going into 2018 is that I think the mining investment slump will have come to an end, and that's been knocking about one percentage point off economic growth. So in other words, were it not for the mining investment downturn, growth would have been, say, over the year to the uh, year to the uh, September quarter, rather than 1.8%, it would have been 2.8%, for example. Um, so that drag will start to come to an end as mining investment stops falling. But uh, th there is an issue there, um, and it's obviously affecting uh, federal government finances. It's also affecting the inflation rate, this sort of constrained growth. Um, and that uh, could could lead, of course, to the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates again as we go through 2017. There's some talk of uh, the Reserve Bank finally getting around to hiking interest rates and joining the US. I mean, but I take it you would see that more as a 2018 story. I think a rate hike in Australia is well and truly a 2018 story. Uh, the US economy is a lot stronger. For example, if you take their unemployment rate as officially measured, it's 4.6%. In Australia, it's uh, it's around 5.6%. So they've got a stronger labour market, particularly so if you look at um, what you call underemployment. Their underemployment rate is about 9.5%. People who are either unemployed or are working but want more hours, um, whereas ours is close to 14.5%. So we've got a lot of people um, who may have a job that want more work. They're, they're underemployed, in other words. So there's a lot of spare capacity in our labour market, which tells us that our economy is a lot softer, that wages pressures in Australia will remain a lot weaker than they are in the US, and therefore a rate, rate hike in Australia is a long, long way away. In fact, my feeling is that, uh, that uh, 2017 is more likely to see a rate cut than a rate hike. And that's simply because the Reserve Bank is probably going to revise down their inflation forecasts again and uh, see it take even longer to get back to the, the target inflation zone. Well, Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your insights for next year and thank you very much and uh, have a, wishing you a fantastic Christmas. My pleasure. Great to be, uh, be talking to you through the course of 2016 and look forward to uh, speaking again in 2017. Thank you very much, Shane. So, what do you think of that, Leon? Well, I thought it was really important. He gave us all the tips about what to expect next year. It's going to be very interesting to watch. And let's see how much it comes true. 
Yeah, it's not only going to be interesting, it could be worrying. Uh, Things aren't looking too good. Uh, The news, Leon? Well, Gary, of course, the big news this morning was that the Fed uh, raised interest rates for the second time uh, in 12 months uh, to uh, up 25 basis points. It's uh, now going to be somewhere between 0.5 and 0.75%. Yeah, pretty low. And Janet Yellen is forecasting another rise next, uh, well, not forecasting, but hinting another rise next year. Well, the most interesting thing will be if we'll see how President-elect Trump responds to this, Gary. Yeah, and how the country responds to President Trump when he's president. That's right. And uh, indeed, his shock election as US president has shaken up the outlook for shares next year and could plunge the US into recession by 2019, according to legal and general investment management. Uh, Strategist uh, Lars Krekel said Trump's election had introduced more risk into stock markets, with the outlook for shares now looking much more volatile. He factors in dollar appreciation of 10% following the Fed's increase that would reduce earnings growth back to 12% and higher corporate bond yields, which would bring it down to 10%. But he warned this short-term party, as he put it, for stock markets could come to an abrupt end with US recession of possibility in 2019. An LGIM economist, Tim Drayson, said Trump's tax cutting, free spending plans at a time of low unemployment, risks the US economy overheating, causing the Federal Reserve to hike rates and prompt a nasty downturn at the end of the decade. And Drayson said that Trump's plans were radical, but it remains to be seen how much change he could actually get past Congress. Indeed, he's doing a lot of talking. He isn't exposing himself to media questions either. No. Just tweeting. That's right. He's been avoiding press conferences. He hasn't given a press conference since July. In fact, 2017 is going to be a real cliffhanger of a year because Trump is untried. You've got Brexit. You've got the possibility of Marine Le Pen in in France won't win but will have an effect yeah you know as as Shane Oliver said there's a whole lot of factors coming into play in the market so let's just see what happens now to Australia and uh, bad news for retailers in the lead up to Christmas Gary Australian consumer confidence has nosedived falling a sharp 4.4% in the week ending 11th of December to reach its lowest level since May just days after last week's disappointing gross domestic product figures showing the Australian economy had slowed to 1.8%, triggering forecasts of recession. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey found that confidence in economic conditions over the next 12 months has plummeted 11.7%, bringing that part of the index to its lowest level since February. That's the biggest drop in a long time, isn't it? That's right. Now, uh, Australian consumer sentiment has also plummeted to an eight-month low on the back of data raising concerns about the country's economic outlook. The Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment fell 3.9% from 101.3 points in November to 97.3 this month. That's the lowest level since April this year when it printed 95.1. And there's now a clear majority of pessimists over optimists with the index down 3.5% compared to a year ago. Yeah, and it's largely because of the uncertain politics in the place. That's right. And more worrying news, Gary. Trading conditions have fallen to their lowest level since April 2015, raising more concerns about the fragility of Australia's economy following last week's September GDP report. The National Australia Bank's latest monthly report measuring business conditions combining trading conditions, profitability and employment in sub-indices, fell to five in November. Like most economists, NAB chip economist Alan Oster expects the economy to rebound in the fourth quarter. 
However, he forecasts that would only see the economy getting back to its relatively subdued growth track characterised by muted domestic demand. And he said the performance of different industries was mixed. The standout performer, he says, was the services sector. Others did not do as well. He said the retail industry continues to be a major drag on conditions. And meanwhile, of course, wages haven't gone up. Part-time work is increasing. Well, we've got uh, the labour force figures coming out today. It's expected to be something like 5.6%, but the big focus will be on the breakup between part-time and full-time. And that's the issue, is that with a lot of the economy now on part-time work, wages are not moving. And in real terms, are going backwards. That's right. Now, other worrying news is that residential property price growth has slowed to its weakest rate in three years, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The September quarter figures released yesterday show uh, residential property prices rose 3.5%, the lowest growth since the March quarter in 2013. And meanwhile, we started to see discounting in uh, apartment prices in Melbourne. Indeed. Uh, And there's a lot of discounts going on in shops at the moment. I mean, it's like I'm walking around shopping centres and I'm seeing lots of sales and I'm thinking, it's Boxing Day already. Things are desperate for retailers at the moment. Now, uh, Gary, the corporate cop says its new artificial intelligence software will focus on fake news on social media boosting stocks that don't deserve it and manipulating the market. Australia Securities and Investments Commission Chairman Greg Midcraft told the Australian Financial Review this week that the software would target rogue market behaviour and focus on people putting out fake news on social media. Now, the issue of fake news, of course, has been critical in the wake of the role it played in the 2016 US presidential election. And for investors, telling the difference between what's real and what's made up is critical when they're deciding where to park their money. And Mr. Medcraft told the AFR the threat was real and the aim was to use the data analytics to more accurately predict market movements while detecting market manipulation and criminality at the same time. And it isn't only fake news, it's the cumulative effect other people, you know, take the Medi-Scare That's right. Thing. People still think that Medicare is going to be privatised. How do you do that? Crazy. And how it affects shares and how it affects markets is a worry. Absolutely. Now, uh, Gary, the average Australian's electricity bill will be $78 higher because of the closure of the Hazelwood Power Station, according to the Australian Energy Market Commission's annual report. AEMC Chairman John Pearce said the retirement of coal-fired generators will increase residential electricity prices in most places. And the report estimates that wholesale costs are estimated to increase between 5% and 15% each year over 2015-16 and 2018-19 in most states and territories, and demand, on the other hand, will remain flat. In fact, we're using less electricity now than we were 10 years ago. But we're paying more for it. Indeed we are. Now, Gary, after a two-day outage that took a number of its systems offline, the Australian Taxation Office restored its website late on Tuesday, but it's still got issues. The problem was caused by a world-first technical glitch to the Hewlett-Packard Enterprise equipment that stores the ATO data. The backup systems failed to kick in. The HPA storage network was upgraded in November 2015. And according to the website IT News, the meltdown caused the loss of one petabyte of data. And alarmingly, the tech meltdown comes after the internal disaster that hit the ABS website on census night in August when its website crashed in spectacular style, blocking out 15 million Aussies trying to fill out their forms and ultimately costing taxpayers $30 million. And the tech disasters, Gary, come in the wake of budget cuts to both the ATO and ABS and raise questions about the ability of government departments to run modern online services to the public. Well, if you haven't got the people, how are you going to run it? Indeed. Now, to corporate news, and this is interesting, 
BSG Resources, the Guernsey-registered mining arm of Israeli diamond billionaire Benny Simetz's business empire, is preparing to file a lawsuit against Rio Tinto on its alleged contribution to the loss of BSGR's mining rights in Samandu, Guinea. And in its letter to Rio Tinto's chief executive officer Jean-Sebastien Jacques and chairman Jean de Plessis, BSGR's lawyers say that unless there's a satisfactory response by January the 3rd, the company will launch legal proceedings and the case, which will be launched in the English High Court, could see BSGR pursuing Rio Tinto for billions of dollars. And BSGR is alleging it discovered facilitation fees bribes paid by Rio to its controversial political advisor in Guinea, Francois de Combray. And BSGR claims these payments prove the Australian miner induced the government of Guinea to breach its agreements with BSGR. Now, the bad blood between Rio Tinto and BSGR goes back to 2008 when the then Guinea dictator Lansana Conte stripped Rio of the rights of the northern half of the Simando iron ore deposit and handed them over to BSGR. And this was reversed in 2010 and Rio got the rights back when opposition leader Alpha Conde assumed the presidency and Rio paid $700 million to resolve its dispute with Guinea over Simandu, seeking to secure its claim on the southern half of the deposit. Now, in its official response to BSGR, Rio, Rio Tinto said it would defend itself robustly. Which they always say. That's right. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Private equity giant bank capital has swooped on Camp Australia childcare business. Camp Australia provides before and after hours care in schools throughout Australia and works with more than 600 schools around the country. And it's been on the market since October. Now, there was an expectation of a $400 million price tag, but it's not known what price was achieved. Uh, Bain has been pushing into this space for some time. It acquired childcare business only about children uh, from founder and chief executive Brendan Mackesy in October. And it's also been putting up an investment in US childcare outfit Bright Horizons. Interesting that the investment, a lot of this clever investment money is going into A, childcare and B, aged care. Yeah, I mean, these are the two growth areas of the economy. Now, uh, Australia's largest gas infrastructure business, the APA Group, has expanded into solar, striking a 12-year power purchase deal with the West Australian energy provider Synergy. The contract will see the development of a 20-megawatt Emu Downs solar project, which is near APA's existing 80-megawatt Emu Downs wind farm acquired in 2011 as part of a $15 million WA project. And APA is receiving $5.5 million of funds from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and construction of the project will begin in January. Just quietly, despite the lack of government support, renewable energy is growing quite quite quickly in Australia. It is. Gary Macquarie has thrown a spanner into the works of Tabcor's planned takeover of TATS with a Macquarie-led consortium making an offer for TATS. Now, the consortium uh, comprising Macquarie, private equity firm KKR, infrastructure manager Morgan Stanley Infrastructure, and local superannuation investor First State Super is offering cash and shares in a spin-off company. And the plan is to break up the TATS business, with Macquarie and its co-investors handing the wagering unit back to TATS shareholders, leaving Macquarie's consortium with the lottery business, which has lucrative brands like TATS Lotto and Powerball. And the TATS board still has to decide whether Macquarie offer is better than the $11.4 billion cash and script bid that Tabcor has on the table. Now, back in November, Tabcor purchased control of around 10% of its takeover target TATS for $638 million. And the strategy behind that was to make it harder for an interloper to gate crash and break up the agreed deal for the $6.1 billion TATS. And the Tabcor deal was signed in October. It's expected to be completed next year. Now, the Tabcor offer still, however, requires the approval from 75% of TATS shareholders. It also needs approval from the Australian Competition Consumer Commission and the chairman of the ACCC, Rod Sims, had told the age at the time that the Tabcor TATS merger raised what he said was major concerns and he said there's a lot of overlap between the two companies. So he wouldn't be against the uh, breakup? No. 
It's something for shareholders to consider, so watch that space. And finally, Gary, Ooh Media and APN are planning a merger which will create a company with 8,985 digital screens, 63,200 static tights and eight online platforms in Australia and New Zealand in a range of formats including roadside billboards, retail, airports, offices and railway stations. And pro forma earnings for the merged group before interest tax and depreciation amortisation are forecast at $171 million in the 2016 financial year. And that's going to be a huge one. I mean, it needs approval from the Umedia shareholders, and of course the ACCC will have to approve it too, because it'll be such a dominant player in the market. It's massive. And that's it for this week, and that's it for the year, Gary. Good, Leon, and uh, we're back in the first week of February uh, 2017, aren't we? That's right, and we're really looking forward to bring you Talking Business next year. In the meantime, stay safe, have a fantastic, safe and happy Christmas. And we'll talk to you in the new year.